So after you've settled into a comfortable and stable position, bring your awareness to your body. Just ground your awareness there. can use our attention to come into our body in a couple of different ways. One, we can do the body scan from yesterday. Start at the top of your head and make your head soft. Move down, relaxing the forehead, relaxing the area around and behind the eyes. Relaxing the mouth, perhaps trying a half smile. Or letting the jaw drop about a quarter of an inch to relax the face. Noticing your shoulders, again, from the inside out. Letting them be soft. Notice if they're hunched in any way. You can try bringing them right up to your ears and then letting them drop into a comfortable position. Notice your arms. Let them be soft. And your hands, let your hands be soft. Sometimes we carry a lot of tightness and pressure in the hands. Moving down and relaxing the heart area. And to the abdomen, let your belly fall right into your lap. Don't hold it in any way. Just let it fall right into your lap. Noticing the area of the genitals, the hips. Feeling our knees and the contact points or our feet and the contact points. And alternatively, that's a way to come into your body, is just to focus on the level of physical sensations of touch and contact and pressure in your body wherever. It makes contact with the floor, the chair, or the cushion. Just spend a a minute grounding your body. Bring the energy down into the earth. You're rooted just like a tree would be. And after you've come into your body, you can choose an anchor. I think of my anchor as my best friend. It's a home base. It's it's the friend I enjoy coming back to over and over again when I'm lost. Especially if I'm lost in some sort of rumination or a thought of an obsessive nature or my mind is racing. And you can experiment with what that anchor is for you. And it could change from meditation to meditation. One, it could be the physical sensations of the breathing. Or it could just be being grounded in the body in the way we've been talking about. Or it could be a mantra or one of the loving-kindness phrases that metta, that Bla talked about yesterday, or it could be sound. Again, this practice is so much about the experimentation associated with investigation. What works best for you in this moment? So bringing our attention... I use the breath, so I'll talk about the breath, to the changing patterns of the physical sensations as the breath moves in and out of the body, noticing where you experience them. 
noticing the entire in-breath and the pause between where the in-breath ends and before the out-breath begins. And eventually the mind will be pulled away or absorbed by something else, and that's perfectly okay. It's what our minds do. It's not a mistake or a failure when this happens. It's natural to all of us. Our minds are designed to think. And again, if the, if, if you've left your breath and you have no idea when and you've wandered away, you can just gently escort your attention back to it. And it's important to bring a quality of awareness and and kindness to that awareness and understand deeply that repeated wanderings of the mind are just opportunities to create what we talked about last night, to cultivate something new, greater patience and acceptance and compassion toward your experience. Nothing that happens in the meditation experience is wrong. There's not something that should be happening. There are no transcendent states to achieve. You just sit with whatever presents itself. So the, in part of the meditation practice, and this is the part known as the concentration practice, we're, we're training to be able to simply return to the present moment through the simplicity of our breathing, or our anchor. Just this. Watching our breath coming and going. Noticing the physical sensations in the body. Doing and wanting nothing. Not thinking that something else should be happening. Just doing and wanting nothing in an effortless state. being open to, letting thoughts, emotions, feelings come and go. Beginning to understand that our true essence is the sky and not the clouds. Your anchor helps you know that you are as vast and wide as the ocean. Well, sometimes we experience the turbulent waves, and if one wave compares herself to another, she's going to be caught up and suffer. And waves forget that they're part of the ocean. So we're just developing an awareness and openness to all these things without withdrawing or centralizing into this thing called self. And then there are a couple different ways to work with things that come up in meditation. Tara talked about rain yesterday. So while following your breath, you can begin to recognize what your mind has wandered away to. Now it might be a body sensation, it might be a sound, it might be a a thought, a memory, might be your to-do list, might be a sound. You can experiment with this. For some people it's helpful to label it, and for some people that doesn't work so well. Again, you have to investigate what works best for you. So in the, the body, it might be itching or tingling or heat. 
In the heart, we might notice strong emotions, sadness, joy. We might feel the bliss or rapture of of connection. We might feel irritation, boredom, anxiety, deep grief, anger. And we can begin to notice what the sensations of strong feelings are like in the body, allowing them to be just what they are. If it feels too intense, we can take care of ourselves by touching in and out or by confining our exploration of these sensations to perhaps our hands or our feet. And if it feels painful, we can add the phrases that Tara talked about yesterday. And this too. I consent. Yes. Pay attention to the tone and the volume of your voice in the background when you're doing this. Should be kind and compassionate, and the volume should be low. We might notice mental formations in the form of thoughts, judgment, planning, remembering. We shoot the second arrow when we judge the judging when something painful happens and we add bad mother, bad partner, bad child to it. So we can notice when we're doing that. That's the level and layer of suffering that we do have some choice about. And especially when we're experiencing a lot of judgment with this kind of noticing, we might add the phrase judgment, and that's okay. So when we look deeply into a sensation or a feeling or thought, We don't think about it. We're actually inside it. That's what we mean. We experience the practice from the inside out. We're experiencing the sensations and the texture of it from the inside out. Perhaps it's pleasant. Perhaps it's unpleasant. Perhaps it's intensely pleasant or intensely unpleasant. But if we pay close attention, we'll begin to notice how it's constantly changing. We often begin our investigation of our emotional world and our cognitive or thinking world with the body because the body is our most immediate way of experiencing and relating to life and it always lives in the present moment. So all of our other reactions to thoughts, to external situations, to people, to emotions, are actually in response to these sometimes obvious and sometimes quite subtle physical sensations. And research has shown that 
without the repetitive thoughts, the add-ons, that the actual emotions themselves don't last longer than 90 seconds. And what happens is most of us stay in our heads with our feelings by trying to figure out why we are feeling what we are feeling and we begin to obsess and strategize about it. And then we're lost in this swirl of ruminations. And the way that you can tell if this is happening is these thoughts are often very sticky. They have a looping and obsessive nature to them, and that's how you can recognize them. I call these thoughts Velcro thoughts. So rather than simply floating through the mind as something that we can explore and investigate, they stick. And when this happens, that's where our friend, the anchor, comes in in a wonderful way. We just return. When we get lost in the Velcro thoughts, we just return to our friend, the anchor. And these kind of, uh, this kind of obsessive thinking when it is Velcro-like, it's always going to propel us away from the, the present moment into the past or into problem-solving mode with respect to future strategies or into avoidance mode. Just come back to the present moment. The other way to look at this is that as we're sitting here, we might notice a, a recurring thought, an emotion, or sensation that's not sticky in nature, but seems to be calling for our attention in some way. And if so, we can make a conscious, underlying conscious choice to leave the breath to explore it. So we're not, we don't just find ourselves in some sort of obsessive rumination with that Velcro nature. We're making a conscious choice. We recognize it. We're allowing it. We're leaving the breath to investigate it with some kindness. For example, with any feeling of fear, anger, or intense emotion, we might first pay attention to the physical sensations of how and where it shows itself in the body. Might be clenching and tightening sensations in the jaw or shoulders or chest or stomach. We might notice prickly feelings of adrenaline and energy with it, especially if it's angry. But notice that doing this is, it keeps the experience present moment centered. For example, with anger, I'm not thinking about who did what and who is to blame for what and what I'm going to do about it. I'm simply experiencing what these emotions feel like or exploring the nature of these feelings in my body in this present moment. I noticed anger is arising. Ah, this is the nature of anger. And with practice, we come to know for ourselves how our emotions register and make their imprint in our bodies. And most of us have to actually train or retrain ourselves in how to be embodied in this manner. And sometimes we confuse being embodied with being athletic. And I've even seen really great yoga practitioners who carry themselves around very tightly and anxiously in everyday life without realizing it. So being embodied is not about being athletic. It's about learning how to be grounded in the body, how to bring that energy down how not to suppress or run with our thoughts. And when we learn how to do this, when we learn how to simply explore the physical sensations of 
emotions and thoughts, we find this new place of spaciousness. Literally feels like there's spaciousness, then they can begin to circulate. And as we become more accustomed to experiencing sensations free of interpretation, free of judgment, then we begin to understand how to be with life just as it is. And that's where freedom is. Freedom is where the storylines begin to dissipate and recede. And as we get more accustomed or skilled at, at recognizing the sensations associated with our emotional and cognitive world, we can start to expand and include more aspects of our experience. So we can start noticing the texture of our experience. And that texture is always going to be some gradation of what I mentioned before. It's always going to be some intensity level of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the reason working with the texture, the sort of mood of the mental state, is so helpful is this is the area where we work with craving and aversion. And we begin to see that if we're not aware of pleasure as simply pleasure, that there's a natural shift into grasping or clinging after that pleasure in an effort to make it stay. In fact, sometimes we don't even enjoy the moment because we're thinking about how to get more of it. And likewise, if we're not aware of and don't simply understand unpleasant as unpleasant, then we experience aversion in the form of trying to get rid of it or control it with some strategy. And with this kind of investigation, we notice for ourselves that when something is pleasant, Our tendency is to open and move toward and embrace it. And when something is unpleasant, we have the tendency to contract and move away from it in some way. And by beginning to understand all of this, we learn to sever the link between thoughts and habitual tendencies, between thoughts and the strong conditioning and reactivity that comes with that conditioning that I talked about last night. So we learn to calm the tendency toward pleasant and grasping and between fear and aversion. And we learn experientially how not to add on to the urge or emotion with our storylines and to simply let them run their 90-second course. And as we learn how to do it, then we're less likely to express it unwisely or mask it by getting angry. And regardless of of what technique or method of investigation we're using. And again, it's up to us to explore what works for us. But after being with whatever was calling for our attention and exploring it for a period of time, we can return to our friend, the anchor. The next breath, sound, our mantra, our loving-kindness phrase, whatever anchor we're using in this sitting. So by returning over and over to the anchor, we're developing our concentration practice. We're learning how to let go. We're learning lessons about non-judgment. We're learning how to relax with the present moment. 
And by consciously choosing to leave our anchor, to notice and explore what our mind has wandered away to, we're beginning to develop insight into the patterns of our mind and our conditioning. And again, this, this leads to the freedom of choice. We can begin to ask ourselves, what is being called for in this moment? What am I practicing in this moment? What would it look like? Or how can I bring kindness and compassion for myself to this moment? And with this kind of awareness, we're learning how to feed new ways of being and how not to feed the same old patterns. So we're cultivating new and more helpful ways of being. So let's just try this out for a little while once again. Resting within the body. Being aware in this moment. Not planning to be aware at any other moment and not regretting. Having not been aware in other moments. The possibility lies here in this moment. You can just sit without expecting, without hoping for anything special. Just take a short stretch break. So a really important part of a meditation practice, and this is where the end of RAIN comes in, the non-attachment, the non-judgment, is to non-aggressively drop the ongoing conversation in our head and learn to joyfully come back to the present moment. And this sort of joyfully is kind of a challenge at at times. And so I want to teach you a specific technique for cultivating joy, especially in the walking meditation, although we'll learn it by, by sitting. You can apply it in 
walking. And it's also something that you can apply to many moments of your daily life in order to consciously nurture and build new neural pathways of joy. And it's a very simple technique, as most things are in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition. It comes from the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition. And it's a technique called the Ten Breaths Practice. And it comes from an ordained Dharma teacher in uh, my root tradition, the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, by the name of Glenn Schneider. And he's actually written, it's a cute little book, and it's really worth taking a look at, especially for those of you who teach mindfulness. Uh, it's about a 70-page book in pretty large print. It probably would take you an hour to read it. Um, and I believe it's called Ten Breaths to Happiness. And he describes his discovery of the practice as a time he was in his garden and he looked up. He just happened to be in his garden and he looked up and he saw this beautiful crescent moon that was framed by the bare branches of a buckeye tree on a crisp February day, just like we have today, in his backyard. And he decided just to take ten conscious breaths while looking at this beautiful scene. And he said he just felt nourished in a way that felt just a little bit new to him. And it was a small, pleasant feeling, and then he just continued doing what he was doing. But because of that feeling that he had when he stopped and just took time to really notice... He kept using the practice to recognize and cultivate other times of joy and happiness. So the Ten Breaths practice is a very simple way to use conscious, rhythmic breathing to help us savor life's precious moments and to live more fully. And it's a concrete way of bringing mindfulness off the cushion off the chair into our everyday lives and watering the seeds of joy. So it's very simple. When something good or beautiful or wonderful touches us in some way, it can be in the sensory world or it can be a wonderful interaction with a partner. It can be sight, it can be sound, it can be the feeling, the feeling of intimacy in connection with another. What we do is we stop and we offer it our full presence for the length of ten breaths so that we can really taste the experience. So in order to do this, though, we use kind of an alternative way of counting because we want to really be able to focus on the experience itself rather than the counting. So... What I often do, um, whether I'm standing or sitting, and I'll stand so that you can see me easier. Don't do remember to bring the mic. So, you know, it can be kind of tricky um, counting and, and taking something in. So I use my fingers. Sometimes I use one hand and sometimes I use both hands. And I'll often put them right on my thighs. Or I might do this even. I put them together. And so I start with my thumb. And let's say I love that picture in the back room. I might be standing in front of it, really appreciating the art and the beauty of it. And So I press my thumb. Just took one in-breath and out-breath. Then I pressed my first finger, my forefinger. One in-breath and out-breath. Then my second finger. That very special finger. One in-breath and out-breath. And my third finger. 
then my little finger. And then sometimes I'll use my other hand and do exactly the same thing on the other thigh. Or I'll just start back with the little finger and proceed back the way I came. So it's... Um, the reason we do that, of course, is not to get caught in the counting because we can only pay one attention to one thing at, at our time. And now what I've noticed with this practice is that I have begun to notice the opportunities um, for touching the preciousness of life more. In some ways, it's almost like a gratitude practice. Um, you know, and it really is about cultivating new pathways and happiness, the moments that can present themselves for this each day. So like all meditative practices, this is a way to stop, open our heart, and savor what we love in the world, to let in the good, to let in the good. And it's a great way, again, to create new neural pathways in our brain by consciously feeding and watering the seeds of joy. And the reason that it's ten breaths rather than three or five is that neuroscientists have found that it takes about 30 seconds of stimulation to firmly root a new neural pathway. Isn't that great? That's all it takes. So... You know, if you're practicing the skill of pausing and refraining throughout your day that we talked about last night, you can use three breaths for that. Three, five breaths. But to, to really savor something, um, I'm suggesting the ten breaths because that's what neuroscience has shown it takes. So, something catches our eye. Something touches our heart. Good feelings arise. And a lot of times this happens in the walking meditation because the world of senses arise more vividly, especially if we walk outside. So in the walking, we're opening our eyes and the world of sight opens, the world of contact and movement arises with our steps. The sounds come more alive. And of course, if we're outside, nature helps with this process. And... We can, in the walking, we can make any or all of the senses our home base. The pressure of our feet, the images, smells, the sounds of the natural world, which are often so beautiful. So we can pause when something strikes us as beautiful or interesting and fully offer ourselves to the experience, fully give it our complete attention with ten breaths. And it's in the walking that we often learn how to be increasingly attentive and mindful about what happens with contact with sensory objects. And it's where we learn to understand this contact. And again, what's so interesting, that is where we can learn how to work with the textures of pleasant and unpleasant. Um, it's just as powerful and even more powerful sometimes in the, than the sitting practice because we learn that as we see and hear the world arise, that the inner world arises in response to it. So good feelings arise, and we can train ourselves to fully experience one or more of these moments with the practice. So it's a simple way of helping us understand that happiness isn't something random in nature. Um, sometimes we tend to think of happiness like we think of good weather. You know, it, it's, it's, sometimes it's here and sometimes it's not. But it is something that can be cultivated. And that's what the Ten Breaths practice is for. And, you know, if you work with children, they understand this practice. And like other very simple practices in the Thich Nhat Han tradition, it's a whole, or what we call a whole organism practice. So what I mean by that is that we bring our bodies and minds together in a focused way to be really present for life. 
So often our thinking minds, right, are in one place and our bodies are in another. And in meditation, you know, one of the ways to bring body and mind back together is to just focus our ourselves on the physical sensations of the breathing. And so the ten breaths practice is something that that tries to use the breath as a bridge that connects body and mind in response to something that we're really enjoying. So let's just try it. So again, settle into a comfortable but dignified uh, and stable position. Bring your awareness to your body by focusing your attention on the sensations of touch and contact. Put your hands on your thighs. Starting with the thumb of your dominant hand. In and out. Your first finger. Pressing your second finger down. The third. And the little finger. You could also move your hand to your heart if you wish. And go backwards on your finger. Or use your non-dominant hand. Do exactly the same process. So go ahead. So we've got time for a few questions, if anybody has any. Please. Oh, Janet's coming with the mic, right up in the front row. Thank you. Um, So it's sort of one sort of ancillary question and then one primary. I feel like I've designed that purple brace you use in my in my own more painful meditations a couple times. And I'm just wondering if it's something of your own design or if it's something that's available. It's uh it's available. It's um I did not design it. I saw somebody else using it just as you did. It's called Not a Chair, N A D A. It's a takeoff on not a chair. And I actually uh, discovered it for sitting on the ground watching my kids' soccer games when they were little because it gives a brace to your back and you can clip the knees and it's just really stable. And then when I started developing back problems, I started using it for meditation, both sitting on a cushion and moving away from the, the back of a chair. 
So you can you can Google it, or um, I actually got mine before the internet. So you can, then you call the number in the phone book, an 800 number, and some woman answered and sent them out from her house. I'm sure it's gotten to be a much bigger business now. Awesome, thank you. Um, my second question: Is it possible to? Um, I mean, we were talking about rerouting neural pathways and you're talking about it in terms of rerouting them from a positive, from a joy aspect. Could you also use that with a difficult person? Like, could you use it to, I don't know, on the first breath, like sort of drink them in and feel the aversion, and then as you go through the ten breaths, could you use it to, you know, on the second breath, find something nice about their face on the third, you know? (laughs) Well, of course, that's experimenting, you know? That's like applying the practice in the real world, and that's a very creative way to apply it. I often think of it as sort of a a helpful gratitude practice, and I often think of what you're talking about as sort of a pausing and refraining practice that I might use three breaths with because whoever I'm interacting with might wonder why I'm taking <laughs> ten, you know, ten breaths. Um, so, you know, the, the practice is very mobile and it's like a toolkit and you can pull different things out when, when you need it. And so, yeah, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful way of dealing with aversive people. I'm going to remember that one. I, I was actually using sort of flashing faces of my sangha. Yeah. As, so it wasn't one person. It was just sort of like, oh, and them. Yeah. Oh, oh, and them. You know, it was really... It was, <laughs> well, and that's sort of a bridge with the meta practice yeah. that La taught with a challenging person yesterday, too, that might be really... I mean, it's just great. Oh, he know. was in there. I, I brought him in. I let him in. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Back there, Janet. Oh. Um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, what you said yesterday about um, watering the seeds of joy and um, how I've been trying to cultivate that in my life for a little while now and how hard it is (laughs) to really um, follow through on the things that I'm passionate about or interest me um, and just for me, for no one else. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could speak to the discipline um, kind of in a bigger way. I know that there's, there's small things that we can do, like the breath throughout the day, and they do connect to then these bigger things like signing up for, um, sailing, like mm-hmm. you did. <laughs> but, um, I find that like following through on like the sailing activities and like those sort of things are really, um, sometimes difficult. And if you could just speak to that. Sure. Well, this is where right effort in the practice comes in. And so uh, right effort is both about extending effort as well as non-effort, really finding that balance. So uh, if we're too tight and we tend to be somebody who's going to start achieving right away, which was me, right? I talked about that last night. And, you know, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes if you have to carry me out of here. I don't, I'm waiting for that bell to ring. Um, that's the end of the continuum where it might be really helpful to say, oh, wow. I do my life this way. How could I bring compassion and kindness to this moment? Oh, and so not feeling like it's a, a failure, but to actually love myself enough to shift my posture or move to a chair. So if we're too tight, we have to learn how to loosen it up. And not from a place of a deficit, but from a place of love, care, and compassion from our place. And then if we're too lax... We have to find a way to tighten it up. So if we're too lax, maybe I'm sitting in in meditation and I have this fantasy, and I know I have this fantasy, but I'm just going to go with it, man, to make the eternal time of this meditation go. And besides, who's going to know? 
right? You know, so that might be a time to tighten it up a little bit. But in terms of daily life, and this I found to be really, really hard because if you wait till you feel like doing things, you won't, right? You won't. And I'll tell you, the only way, and again, this is why where you have to hold two worlds at once in some ways, because it sounds paradoxical. But the only way I've found to take care of that is to consciously plan. And so even when I was working a straight six on, three off shift, um, I would plan to get together with good friends. I'd get it in the calendar. You know, I would get a class in the calendar that I wanted to take. And now that I have more space than I'm self-employed and I can set my schedule up any way I want, I usually, I mean, I have my 2015 schedule and I'm putting things in that that I want to do. The things that I really want to do for 2014 were put in there in 2013 and then everything's planned around that. Now things come up and it doesn't always work out, but... You know, it's so important to engage in the activities that water the seeds of joy. That's as much a part of our practice as anything else. So what are those Zen activities for you? What are those activities where you're just absorbed in the moment for the moment and consciously plan them? There's a question over here. Microphone. Hi. <laughs> um, closer? Okay. So last night um, in your session, Sherry, you were talking about um, how burnout is when you, um, you're giving more than you have to give. Mm-hmm. And I've been pondering that um, since last night, both with respect to relationship with my mother as well as my work. And I work on um, women's rights in a hierarchical, bureaucratic organization that there's tension there. Um, And I'm just wondering, (laughs) so then I was pondering today, like, what if what you have, so what do I have to offer? Mm -hmm. Um, Rather than what do I not have to offer? What do I have to offer? Um, and I identified things that there is a tension between what I have to offer and what people are ready to receive. So how do you approach that, and how do you deal with that in social justice work and in relationships? Well, what you learn to do is your advantage is always that you know the language of the arena you're in. So I've never talked about meditation and mindfulness much when I'm working with criminal justice professionals, Um, but I know how to translate their language. Uh, into, and I know the language of this practice, so I try to put the language of this practice into here. So, uh, you know, for example, I did a training early on when I started to realize that, uh, my gosh, we're really good at training officers in the, how to, in the physical tools to do their job in terms of keeping themselves and other people safe, but we're losing people emotionally, not physically. So how can I help train them? And I'm not talking about basic sort of health and wellness, sleep more, eat better, da 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 but how can I train them to um, keep themselves emotionally safe? And what I did is I looked at my career and I looked at sort of the biological effects of the career and the the hypervigilance required and uh, started, uh, did an in-service on the emotional effects of, of that job on us over time. And they loved it so much that they started asking if they could bring their spouses and some of the retired people showed up because they really wanted to understand what had happened to them over time and they realized that they were feeling depressed and listless and that I would never talk about secondary traumatic stress I would translate the language into, hey, these incidents can really have an impact on us. Um, I talked about the biological roller coaster that uh, can happen. So I really used myself as an imprint. And I didn't, 
I didn't really, I thought about the kind of workplace that I wanted to live in and how I could be, I mean, I don't want to sound trite about it, but as Gandhi said, be the change I'm looking to create. So I got my team together and I said, hey, I know that it's the politics of the workplace that really impact people more than anything else. I mean, this is like being back in high school, but all of us have guns for crying out loud, you know? It's like, that's a, that's a scary thought. Um, so what if, you know, so I was thinking about the, the, um, the, uh, uh, element of the Noble Eightfold Path and the, the precept around right speech. And I didn't say we need to use right speech and stop speaking in a less adversarial manner, but I said, what if we made an agreement that if we had a complaint, about somebody else, that we were going to bring it to the group or bring it to the person who could actually do something about it and not go and sit behind closed doors and try to recruit each other to our viewpoints. But I'm only we can only do this if we all agree to it. So if we don't all agree to it, and if we're not all willing to police it with ourselves and each other, let's not agree to it. So I just put it out there. They loved it. You know, I'm talking about cops. If I can do it with cops, you can do it with whatever arena that, that you're in. So I just started thinking about, and you know, this is a, I'm trying to, I've got two books in mind. Um, one is sort of my memoirs and the lessons that they kind of taught me, little police vignettes. And the other one is how do we bring the Eightfold Path into organizational life? How do we do this? So look for the book. <laughs> but I mean, I really started looking at the entire Noble Eightfold Path and how I applied this to my life in organizations. But in a way, you know, that I will, you know, in a way that I think anybody could understand. Right livelihood, you know, for example. Why do we think that bigger is better? Why do we never question that in nonprofits in a way that leads to these caseloads for people that lead to burnout in such a ridiculous way? There's so many ways that we step into the zone of fire that we do have control over. So that's just an inkling. But don't, don't try to change other people. Just be who you want to be. And I guarantee you other people will start responding and they'll get very curious. I think we're out of time, uh, and we have some announcements here. Uh, the airport shuttle sign-up is on the board. Please sign up before 12 o'clock today. If you need to leave early, please write Janet a note, and you'll need to meet with her before you leave. And please come to the 645 sit tomorrow morning. We start our closing announcements then. And for there is yoga today at 3 p.m. If you didn't have it yesterday, when your last name begins with M through Z, uh, you have yoga today at 3 p.m. And the other thing is, is uh, we have, of course, uh, group interviews again today at 11.30 and 4.30. And if you would please make every effort to get there as soon as possible. And what we're going to do is we're going to end the sits before those at least five minutes early. And what we'd like you to do is let the people who have groups leave the meditation hall first so that they can use the bathrooms or do whatever they need to to get to um, their group. And, um, you know, again... I really want to invite you. We're getting a little lackadaisical about it. We might want to tighten up our effort here a little bit in terms of getting to group meetings and sits on time. What does it take to water different seeds so you're not rushing in here at the last minute? Um, you know, again, so much of this is such an opportunity to uh, change habitual behavior and cultivate new ways of being. So... Um, but thank you. The meditation room has been so still. It's really a tribute to your practice. Thank you for your practice and enjoy your day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.